Hello, Bridge family. I, I pray that whenever you're watching this video that it, it finds you um, well, experiencing the love of God, leaning into his hope um, in all of your humanity, both in your person as well as your circumstances, and just casting all your cares upon God and finding him to be faithful, sovereign, good, and true. So, and I also pray that uh, what we go through today is encouraging for us as well as unifying for us in Christ and, and resulting in us living out uh, this, this life that has been given to us. Um, I also just want to let you know uh, something uh, real quick. Uh, we received word from Wharton Dole Language Academy where we had been gathering on Sunday mornings that it will continue to be closed um, to our Sunday gatherings through the end of May. So we'll continue to uh, gather as best and personally as we can following uh, you know, the current recommendations and, and we'll continue to lean into how even though we're not gathering for church on Sundays, we are still the church. Uh, full on. We are everything the church is meant to be for those in Christ, even if we're experiencing it in some some lesser ways. Um, and so I, you know, so I want to encourage you to continue to do as you're doing and, and lean into how we can stay um, connected and caring for one another, equipping for one another, uh, spurring each other on, as well as as best as we are able and as you feel led to loving your neighbors unto Christ and being a light in this world. So We'll continue to follow, uh, we'll continue to seek the Lord, we'll continue to uh, be the church, and we'll continue to see God glorified. So uh, just keep praying, and uh, keep doing, and keep helping us uh, serve you and serve those alongside you. Um, before we go any further, let me pray for us for our time today. Um, God, we love you, and um, I just, I thank you that you have made means for us to continue to gather together in your name. Lord, I thank you that even though we're separated by miles and walls and, and distancing, God, uh, we are still bound together in Christ. We still have a common heart, a common name, and we still have a common cause. And Lord, that is to, Lord, minister the gospel, Lord, both to each other and to the world, God. And so I pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead us, continue to unify us, God. I pray that it would be all for your glory, all in the name of Jesus, and it would be something that is unexplainable by the work of our hands or our understanding. We would see, Lord, your glory. We would see your goodness and grace. We would see, Lord, the result of the transforming work of Jesus, both in us individuals, as well as in us together, as well as through us to the world around us, Lord, and that all would know your name. And so, Lord, I give you this time. Lord, speak through me now. Speak in spite of me. Lord, speak through technology. Whatever it takes, God, just uh, work in our hearts. Be glorified. We submit and surrender all to you and come to your glorious word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are back in Philippians. Um, we're going to be in Philippians 2, 12 through 18 today as we continue our study. Um, so I'm just going to, I want to jump right in reading Philippians 2, 12 through 18. It'll be right here for you. It says this, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So, what's happening here? Just some quick context. Uh, If you've been with us, you've heard, I think, most of this or all of this. But we want to make sure we're all up to speed. Uh, This is a letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. Um, Paul has written many letters that are really pastoral letters. Um, he, He has a great affection for the church in Philippi. He helped start it. He's been there many times. He's got a lot of close friendships. So it is certainly a pastoral letter, but it is way more personal in nature. Um, Paul is writing from prison. He is in prison at this time, expecting to face death kind of at this moment. He's writing to the church in Philippi where the Christians in that church are living in their own difficult circumstances. They're marginalized, probably experiencing their own persecution. And so he he is in a difficult circumstance, writing to a difficult circumstance. But the tone of the letter is so paradoxical to that. It's so unintuitive. It is joyful. It's lifted. And so we see this even translate in Paul's concerns in this letter. Uh, We see, first off, we kind of what, what breaks through quickly is just this tone of encouragement and gratitude because what has happened Paul is writing greatly largely in response to the encouragement he has received from the church in Philippi as they have sent Epaphroditus to encourage him and support him both in tangible resources as well as emotional and spiritual and relational support and so he is just wanting to express his love and gratitude and express how the essential that is in his own persevering hope and faith and work and then also we see his one of his larger concerns as he shares his testimony and he gives his instructions. So instead of being straight kind of a pastoral instruction letter, he is more so sharing his testimony and through his testimony comes the instruction. And one of his, his big drives is how we can live with joy and peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so he shares how he's doing that. His hope is that they would experience that. And it's not just for their well-being, but it's also for this. His third concern, really the central concern, and it always comes back to this for Paul, and and I can only pray that it comes back to this for all of us over and over again. Paul's greatest concern and central drive for all this is that all of this would lead to the progressing, the continued progressing of the gospel, right? So in them living with joy and peace in difficult circumstances, it would result in the progressing of the gospel. And, And what we see is it's not just externally. Yes, Paul's ultimate goal is to see the gospel seek and save the lost, see the work of Jesus come and penetrate the darkness and bring life and light to the unbelieving world in Philippi. That's certainly Paul's concern, but it's not just that. There's also the internal progressing of the gospel to each individual that the work of Christ would continue to liberate and transform their lives and then also work internally as the body of Christ to build up and strengthen and unify the body of Christ. So we come into these verses, (coughs) excuse me, and it starts with a therefore. 
And the therefore always tells us that this is connected to what preceded. And what we know, as we've already covered, is that this section we're covering today is the culmination of a long section that started in Philippians 1.27, where Paul's greatest concern is the unity amongst those that make up the church. The unity that makes the the unity amongst those that are called together to a specific place in a specific time. We can relate to that. That's us. We are a people called together a specific place in a specific time. And so this has been a call to our own unity. And we see in Philippians 1, 27 through 30, this is a direct parallel to our section. We're not going to break that down today, but I would encourage you to go back and read Psalm 1, 27 through 30 and look for the pieces as they are the same. And then he proceeds into uh, 2, 1 through 4, which is this picture of this, this kind of vibrant life together in loving unity. We saw that. And then last week, as we came back to Philippians at Easter, um, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we see that Jesus's way of life is shown to be the example of self-emptying, humble, others-focused love that leads to this kind of, of loving unity for the body of Christ. And so that text last week is really the, the epicenter of the entire letter, and it's really the hinge point of, of how we are to live in unity in this section. So now we come to our text, and really what our text today is the application of following the example of Jesus. And our big idea today is this, our unity in Christ is essential for the church to glorify God and progress the gospel. When I say essential, I don't mean it's the only way in which God can achieve this. God is boundless. But it is, we see from Scripture that the church is God's primary way of doing his work of the gospel in Christ to redeem the world. And so therefore, our unity is essential for the church to glorify God and progress the gospel. So the concern here is our unity for the sake of the gospel of Jesus and to glorify God. This section is the application of the way of Jesus, and it starts with a general application in verse 12, and it's really a general to, to all, all people in all circumstances, right? It's universal to every person. And Philippians 2.12 says this. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, with fear and trembling. And so this is what we want to start with. Our first point as we pursue uh, this idea that unity in Christ is essential for the church to glorify God and progress the gospel. Here's where we start. Unity starts with you. <coughs> unity starts with you. And, and you say, well, wait a minute. What about Jesus? And I say, you're right. That's what those two little stars are there for. Uh, it starts with Jesus, but we can't forget we just came from uh, from Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we see the work of Jesus. So, so yes, it starts with Jesus, but this assumes that there has been a work of Christ, a claim of Christ on our lives, and we have we have been we are in with that. We we belong to Jesus. He's working in us, and so now our opportunity and pursuing unity starts with you. Unity starts with you because all you can be responsible for is yourself. And specifically here in working out your salvation, all you can be responsible for is your own obedience. 
That's what it says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And maybe you throw a flag when you hear that and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I thought my salvation was not based on works. I thought my salvation was not something that I earned. I thought it was, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? By Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Well, guess what? This is not contradictory. This is not this is not blowing that up. This is not Paul forgetting everything else he's taught. The, the key to us understanding is looking at the difference between justification and salvation. And Paul uses both of these terms <coughs> regularly in his teaching. Um, and what we see here is when we when we think about when we as a kind of American modern Christians when we think of salvation really what we're thinking about is justification and Paul makes it clear that justification which is innocence before God right is the courtroom verdict that we are called innocent we are deemed innocent we're made innocent upon our confession and belief in the atoning, substituting, redeeming work of Christ in our lives, and that when we trust in Jesus to save us, God looks at us and no longer sees our sin guilt, but looks at the holiness and righteousness of his Son that has been given to us in our faith. We have been justified by that. So that's when we think of salvation, we say, I am saved, we're really talking about justification. Here, when we see this work out your salvation, what Paul is talking about here is really the day of the Lord, the culmination of all things, the ultimate salvation you will experience because you are justified, right? So we are justified, like when we confess Christ and are saved, as we say, we're talking about being justified before a holy God, right? And then that's, and then we have, and part of our greatest hope, our living hope, is that we experience this now, but we also know that there is a day coming when all will come to completion. And when there will be, when all that has been promised will be fulfilled, where there will be no more sickness, pain, death. And so, just to clarify, so when we see this, to work our, our salvation with fear and trembling means to, with great fervency, with great intensity and intentionality, to live in a way that evidences what Christ has done for you and me. What he's done for you, what he's done in you. Remember, you are bought with a price. You're not your own. And that price was a great price. Jesus is one and only son of great worth. His beloved creation, you and me, because God loves you that much and desires his glory in your life that much. What Paul is saying here is you are justified. You belong. You are free. You are whole. You are new. He says, don't squander it. Paul is saying if if you look forward to your salvation on the final day, if that's something that matters to you, something you cling to, that you you know that you, you would put the same level of intensity toward your pursuit of working out your salvation, to your pursuit of following the way of Jesus, to your pursuit of obedience unto a holy loving God. You know, it's it's these heralding calls we hear, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. It's Paul saying, hey, go and love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all that you are. He's saying it's what you're created for. It's what you've been reconciled to. So go with full, with full heart, full intention. Pursue living in a way that evidences what has already been done in you. As, as if to, to finish strong, right? And so, and then in case you forget Jesus, he follows it up immediately with this word of comfort. Um, knowing, you know, he says in verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's, it's like God knows us or something. It's like he knows our hearts. He knows our tendencies. He knows how hard it is for us to avoid making our effort about earning. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It's not up to you to earn. Your effort is about enjoying. Your effort is about evidencing. Your effort is about fulfilling what you were created for and therefore experiencing the greatest satisfaction you could ever experience. This is a call to remember what God has already done in Christ. A call to remember what he is doing in Christ and what will always be in Christ. See, our eternal Savior, Jesus, delivers an eternal promise. It is it is a promise that has been made and been kept. So see here. See the heart of God here. See that, yes, there is a charge and a call on our lives, but that God is fully committed to this being accomplished in your life. And guess what? He is more committed to it than you are. And he's evidenced that, again, by, 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 by making it possible at great cost to himself, right? First, by giving his one and only son, and in our faith and trust, giving us his righteousness. So we see first that it's made possible in that, and then we see secondly, he's also given us the Holy Spirit to, to align our hearts and to make us witnesses, to, to, to uh, again, been, conform our will to his. He's given us his word to anchor us, to root us, to lead us, to guide us. He's given us the church to, to again, to encourage and strengthen and, and to bolster, and he's given us relationship with him. We get to pursue this as one who is known and gets to know the living and loving God. What an amazing thing. So that's the general application. But he follows it with two very specific applications to the church. And yes, it's specific to the church in Philippi, but it certainly seems applicable to, to any church as well. So let's continue Philippians 2, 14 through the first part of 16 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So verse 14 immediately starts with this language, you know, it says, Don't, you know, do, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And this is immediately meant to call their minds back to Israel in the wilderness and and it's meant to connect them with not just them but their purpose and then also their experience because what had happened right the people of Israel in captivity under Pharaoh in Egypt they had been enslaved and Moses comes in mighty work of God in miraculous ways they get set free and now they are free from oppression and slavery and abuse and they're in the wilderness and what do they do 
they grumble and complain against God. They grumble and complain against God and they disobey him in, in, in other ways and they just continually just just grumble and complain and, and, and call out God as if he has done something wrong. And so as we connect to their original purpose, right, the, the people of Israel were meant to be, through them being the blessed chosen people of God, the chosen nation of God, and their blessing, they were meant to bring God's blessing to all the nations. Um, not just through them, but, but through the world observing or uh, observing God's character and worth through the way of life in Israel. And yet what Israel did was they gave reasons for the nations to mock and dismiss God. And they prohibited the people of Israel from experiencing God's promise as, been, as had been intended. So when he's saying don't grumble and complain, just quite practically he's saying, hey, don't grumble and complain about each other. You're, you're a people that I have made in Christ. Don't, don't grumble and complain about your leadership. They are people that I have appointed to shepherd and steward and care for you. Don't grumble about your circumstances. I am over your circumstances. I am greater than your circumstances. Your promises from me to you, in you, are greater than your circumstances. And don't grumble and complain about the condition of the world. Don't lament about how it's all going to pot. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Saying, see it as I see it. And why? Why does he tell us not? He follows it directly. This verse 15 continues to summarize it. He says, why? Why, don't, why not do this? Because it's so that you may stand out as a shining light of Jesus in a world of darkness and that the world would come to salvation in Christ. So our second thing we want to hold on to today is that our unity blesses the world. Grumbling and complaining does not come from unity. Grumbling and complaining against one another, grumbling and complaining about our circumstance does not breed unity. It breeds discord and separation and fracture. When we are unified because, because of what Christ has done, when we are unified and content, trusting him over trusting anything else and giving grace to one another and walking along one another with that same grace and patience, the world sees something different. We become that shining light of Jesus in the world of darkness and that the world would may come to salvation in Christ. Our unity only matters if it is around the right things. We can be unified around destructive things and destroy so much. And that's why in verse 16 it says, hold fast to the word of life. We are rooted and grounded in the word. It is the very will and heart and person of God helps us to understand him, understand ourselves. And as we root there, we will be unified rightly. We will be following the right things. Our common commitment to obedience to our glorious and good God and following the way of Jesus will result in our right unity, which will result in the world experiencing and being invited into the gospel of Jesus. And it's not just Paul's concern. It is Jesus's concern as well. In his prayer in John 17, he says this. And it's, notice that it's not just praying for the 11 that are there. It's praying for us too. He starts out of the gate saying, I do not ask for these only that are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And if you are a Christ follower today, that's you and me. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. So just as in Philippians 2.15, we see here in John 17.21, and also 23, that there is this so that clause, right? There is this do this so that there is this result. And the so that is that the world would know that Jesus was indeed sent by God to save the world. Our unity is a witness to the reality of a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Frank Tillman says this, The unity both here and in Philippians is moreover not merely abstract, a feeling of friendliness or a, a recognition of common beliefs, but it's visible. The world must be able to see it and draw conclusions from what they see. The church's unity should be just as clear as a beacon shining in the night. So our unity starts with us, starts with each one of us. Our unity is a blessing to the world. And next we want to see how our unity blesses each other in the body of Christ. Philippians 2, the second part of 16 and 17 says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. So what's happening here? Um, you know, this assumes a work of Christ. So assumedly, if you have experienced that glorious, utterly transforming salvation of Jesus, you will desire what he desires because in your salvation, in your work of being brought into Christ, you are given a new identity. And that is the same heart of Christ. What he desires becomes your desires. What he is is defined as as we are, right? We are we are adopted sons and daughters. We are heirs with him. Right? And so what we know is that Christ came to see a people reclaimed, redeemed, restored to purpose, living intentionally, loving sacrificially, reconciled to God, and living as a confident child of Him. He came to glorify God by seeing this result in the world. Paul communicates over and over again through his letters this desire to run the race well, right, as we see here, to run to the finish, to not give in to weakness of his earthly body. To the point where he's even okay to be poured out as a drink offering, alluding to his own death. And we often interpret this, this intention, this call to finish well, to run to win, to run with integrity. We often interpret it only in a personal sense. It certainly is it, it's certainly not wrong to interpret it in a personal sense. It would be wrong not to. But we can't stop there. It's not just about did I do, did I live faithfully in honoring God with my morals and with my intention to seek and save the lost. It also goes beyond that. It goes beyond the personal and it goes to the communal, to the people of God, right? Because we are not ever created just as a Christ follower. We are a people. We are bound and created as a people. The church is always plural. 
because we've been made the priesthood of believers where each of us are meant to take a shepherding responsibility in caring for and equipping each other to the same thing that Christ wanted that we just talked about. That our blessing, part of our blessing comes when those that we feel responsible live in a way that evidences what Christ has been done with us to the very last day. If we have truly grasped that we have been made a family responsible for one another, then this is quite necessary and natural. So for us to finish the race well, it is also to be able to look and see those that we have been been walking alongside, those that we have been shepherding, we would see like part of us saying, oh, I've, I've done all that I can. You know, we, we want to look to see that we look in our own lives, but also we get to look in those beside us that we have been pouring our lives into, sharing our lives with. And as we see each other live this out, <clears throat> it brings a sense of blessing and purposefulness. Again, our acceptance before God is only in Christ. Our measure is only in Christ. Our satisfaction is only in Christ. But yet, the way that he has wired and created the church, the people of God, this is a reality too. So our unity starts with each of us. Our unity blesses the world in being a shining light that will call people to Christ. Our unity blesses one another as it affirms our work and our, our, our effort and our desires. Amen to that. So one last clincher for us from Paul. Our unity out of obedience to the way of Jesus will lead each other to contentment and rejoicing no matter the circumstance. Philippians 2.18 says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. Paul just got through saying, I will be poor, even if it's in my being poured out, I rejoice in what has been done in you. Paul is saying, hey, I rejoice in what God does in your life through Christ, even if it costs you my life. And guess what? So should you. How can Paul say rejoice in the midst of all uh, all that this life costs us, all that it has cost him, and that it costs him maybe even his life, and it could even cost us our lives. How do we say rejoice? Well, first off, as we said a few a while back, uh, just a few verses ago in this letter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a win-win. We do not have to fear death. So that's first and foremost. Christ has defeated sin and death. We are victorious in him, and to live is to live out his purpose, to love others around us, to die is to be united with him forever um, in, in, in unencumbered fellowship. So that's first off. But then, then secondly, I appreciate how Francis Chan puts it. He says, how can we rejoice? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is worth it. Jesus will bring to completion what he began. In Jesus and through Jesus, we are doing better than we deserve. Root, root your joy in Jesus. Man, when Jesus is everything, when we live under Christ, nothing else can deter us from the joy that is in Christ. Yes, we will continue to face difficulties and tragedies and crises, but the promise of Christ is not that we will one day experience his joy and freedom and peace, but in the midst of all this. It's not that there will be no storms. It's just that he is with us in the storms. The invitation here is not that we run around yelling at each other saying, this is worth it. This is worth your life. Get after it. Rather, it is showing each other with how we live that it is worth it. It's showing that it's worth it. And we do that by living these lives in Christ. And that is our, our unity. See that our unity 
is certainly meant to result in the big mission of God in redeeming the world in Christ. It is certainly meant to do that. But don't miss that our unity is also about God's entire heart and mission of God being accomplished in his manner of work. God is not a dictator who doesn't care about the humanity as long as what he wants gets accomplished. He has a purpose, but he also moves to accomplish it in a way that cares and loves his people. God has always cared for the oppressed and the outcast and the hurting. God has always welcomed in and elevated the lowly and the misfit. <clears throat> Our unity leads to us deeply knowing and caring for one another because that is the way in which God works and accomplishes his work. Our unity leads leads us to lift up resounding worship to God together as we taste and see that he is good and we call each other to that. Our unity all allows every bit of our lives to abide in Christ and to glorify God by ministering God's sustaining grace in the midst of all that is difficult and through that we experience his joy and peace. We experience a persevering hope and we see the progressing of the gospel in and through us, in season and out. To God be the glory. Let's pray. So God, I just surrender all to you. Lord, asking you to work in us and through us, through the mighty work of Jesus. And Lord, that in us being utterly transformed and made new and grafted in and made a family, I pray that, Lord, out of following you, we would see a very real unity. Um, a unity that that transforms each of us a unity that blesses the world and blesses one another lord all for your glory all for the progressing of the gospel lord we surrender all to you in jesus name amen so i want to encourage you uh to you know as you pray through this allow the holy spirit to reveal to you what this means for your life get into a house church gathering man really bring bring what the lord is doing you to you in you to that gathering and share with one another and allow this to be taken even deeper and even further to make it even more real for you and for others around you. I pray you are well. We are better together for the glory of God.